0: following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. Um When I was at university, I was at home one particular day, a few days before my mother's birthday, when a parcel arrived in the post. It was a present for my mum from my grandparents, her in-laws, and she and I were the only ones home that day. I was a uni student, of course, so I was home rather than at uni. (laughs) But I was there at home, and the parcel arrived, and mum started to make a fuss about, oh, cool, my presents have started arriving. I'll open this one now. I mean, she was just joking around, but I kind of jumped in on the game and said, no, there's no way, and grabbed it out of her hands and ran down the stairs uh, to our downstairs area of our house, and I hid the present. I said, ah, you're not allowed it. it's still his birthday, sorry. So it was all very funny until the day of her birthday came. And she'd opened all of her other presents and then realized that she didn't have the present from Grandma and Granddad, And said, oh, Brad, can I have that present? Oh, sorry. And I ran back downstairs to grab it where I'd hid it. And I, I just struggled to find it a little bit. I think I'd hidden it very well. I have the spiritual gift of hiding, obviously. Uh, actually, don't. I'm very absent-minded. That's the issue. And I hunted around for a few minutes with a growing sense of panic that I had lost this present. I could not find it anywhere. I'd taken it downstairs to our rumpus room, downstairs rumpus room in our house and upper hut at that point, and was hunting around for this present in the bookshelves, um, under the couch, everywhere I could think of that I'd hid in this jolly present. And do you know I could not find it anywhere. The rest of the family came Years, and we spent more than half an hour together having special bonding time as a family looking for this jolly present and do you know we could not find it it was rather embarrassing in fact I don't think we ever told grandma and granddad I think they called for mum's birthday and she said thank you for the present without mentioning what it was because she'd never unwrapped it because she'd never got it from her absent-minded son so fast forward about eight or ten years later, and mum and dad, I'm married and gone to Auckland, and the rest of the family's moved out and they sell their house. And they're packing up the house. And guess what? They still can't find the present. <laughs> so somewhere in a house in Upper Hut right now, there is a family who may just have found a gift-wrapped brown parcel with copious amount of sellotape around it because that's what my granddad did and they may one day find it or they may not but that present has never ever been found I want to share some stories with you that Jesus told today about some things that were actually found which is a much better story uh, than the one I just told you and if you've got a bible I'd love you to come with me uh, to the gospel of Luke chapter 15. At Botany Life we are working through the second half of Luke's gospel this year and it's been a tremendous journey for us thinking about what it means to be disciples, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus. And last week actually we came to this story that I've called Lost and Found this morning. It's this, actually it's three stories that Jesus tells in Luke 15 that you probably know very well if you have been a follower of Jesus for any length of time. If you're new to this, or you're checking out the Christian faith, this may not be as familiar, but for most people here, I think, these will be very familiar stories. We know them as the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. But sometimes you know the familiarity we have with stories means they lose their power. And in fact, what I have found over the years is that most Christian people misread these stories, especially the third one. Because it's so familiar to us, we just assume we understand what it's teaching us, when in fact we may well have missed the point all along. So today, I would like to open up this story with you again, and have a look quickly at what these three stories teach us. There's a very simple structure to each of these stories, really sense, it centers around three moves. Lost, found, rejoice. That's basically the outline of the story, each story. Lost, found, rejoice. And what I'd like to do today is run through the first two stories quite quickly to show you how the structure works and then spend our time on the third story because I think that's the one that often we miss the point on. So if you've got your Bible there, have a look. Luke 15, the first story is the story of the lost sheep. And it goes this way, starting from verse three. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a 100 sheep and loses one of them. One of the things Jesus is going to do with this story is he's going to, with these three stories, is he's going to ramp up the importance of what has been lost each time. So in the first story, he loses, the shepherd loses one sheep out of 100. So it's a ratio of 1 to 100. In the next story, the woman is going to lose one coin out of 10. The third story, the father is going to lose one son out of 2. So each time that the stakes are raising in this story. But in this story, it's a sheep. A shepherd has a hundred of them, and one of them wanders off, as sheep typically do, heads off down somewhere, gets stuck in a ravine, who knows what, but he's lost his sheep. So that's the lost part of the story. It then goes on. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Now, that's a rhetorical question, and the answer that Jesus assumes to that question is yes. That's exactly what any good shepherd would do. He would leave his 99. It doesn't mean he leaves them all alone to wander off to who knows where. He would leave the 99 with the other shepherds, because often shepherds would work in groups together with each of their individual flocks. So he would leave his 99 with the other guys While he goes to find that little wandering sheep that's taken off somewhere. That's exactly what a good shepherd would do. So all of the audience that's listening to the story, as Jesus is telling, are nodding their heads. Yep, that's exactly what a good shepherd would do. And so the shepherd goes out and wanders around and walks around and follows tracks until he finds his sheep. That's the fount. Verse 5, when he finds it, he joyfully puts it onto his shoulders and he goes home final part of this story. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. And then Jesus adds, verse seven, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who did not need to repent. So it's a very simple story, isn't it? Lost, found, rejoice. The sheep wandered away. The shepherd goes out and finds the sheep, hunts around until he finds him, brings him home, gathers everyone around, says, let's have a party. I have found my sheep. Lost, found, rejoice. Pretty simple. Second story, verse 8, is the story of a lost coin. Or he says, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins. They're called drachmas. It's about a day's wages. So, it wasn't a, a massive loss to lose a coin, but it was significant. It was Two, three, four hundred dollars in our kind of currency. So, you know, it was worth, you know, looking around for. It's not a ten cent piece that's, that's rolled off uh, the table. So she loses one of these coins. Does she not light a lamp, Jesus says, and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin and then again he says verse 10 in the same way I tell you there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents lost found rejoice that's how these stories work and Jesus is using these images of a shepherd and a woman and about now a father who have lost something incredibly valuable to them And they go out of their way, they work hard, they light a lamp and sweep the house. They go over hill and through valley until they find the thing that they have lost that is so incredibly valuable to them. And they bring it home and they celebrate that they have found this incredibly valuable thing that they have lost. Lost, found, rejoice. So now we come to the third story. Now it's not one out of a hundred or one out of ten, now it's one out of two, but this time it's not just a silly old sheep or an annoying coin, now it is a deeply loved son. And so the stakes in this third story are massive. So, in verses 11 and six to 16 of Luke 15, we come to the first part of the story of The the boy, the lost son. This is how he got lost. Jesus continued, verse 11, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. When do you get a share of the estate? When dad's carked it. So this is a ancient Middle Eastern way of saying, dad, I wish you'd carked it already which in any culture is incredibly offensive. But it's hugely offensive in a culture where honoring those who are ahead of you and honoring those who have given birth to you and parented you is a massive value, and it was in the Middle East. And when Jesus starts this story and says, this youngest son comes to his father and says, give me my share of the inheritance. I wish you were in a casket, dad. His Jewish audience would have gasped. This is unheard of. This is so rude. This is like walking up to his father in the middle of a crowded marketplace and slapping him on the face. The crowd would not have been able to fathom what the son is doing. And if they'd gasped at that, they then would have gasped at the next line, Jesus says, at the end of verse 12. So the father divided his property between them they would have been absolutely astonished at any son who would have come to his father and said give me my share of the inheritance i wish you were dead they would have been even more astonished that a father would actually have done what his son had asked this is an incredibly humble or an incredibly stupid dad And a number of times through this story, this father is going to do the unbelievable. And this is the first event. His son comes and says, I'm out of here. I've had enough. I don't want to be part of this family anymore. You guys suck. Just give me my share of the inheritance and and let me go. You're, You're dead to me. The family's dead to me. I don't want to come to any more reunions. Just I'm out of here. It's time to go. Let me pack up my things, give me my share of the inheritance. I'm off to East Auckland where it's all happening. That's basically the, the, you know, which is the place of sin and debauchery in the story. So, you know, that's how it works. So the father does the unbelievable. He divides up the estate. Now the estate, this is a wealthy family. They have servants later on in the story. They have um, herds and flocks. They have fatted calves. They have... They've got a lot of money, but most of their money, the key asset they had would have been the family land. And that is what would have been divided up at the death of the father. The oldest brother would get a two-thirds share because the oldest son got a double portion. The youngest son would have got a third. So the father divides up. He goes to the the land office. He takes the title deeds, and he puts one-third of the family estate into the hands of his youngest son. Not long after that, it says in verse 13, the youngest son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth and wild living. Now again, the audience listening to to Jesus would have been aghast. Not only was the son incredibly rude to tell his dad, I want my share of the estate, I'd rather you were dead. He's also incredibly rude because what he does when he gets his share of the inheritance is he sells it. Now, we don't understand the importance of land to this kind of culture. Well, you might if you're Maori. Probably that's the closest we would get in our culture, the connection of Maori people to their land. That is how the Jewish people felt. This was the land that God had given their ancestors. This was the land that was part of the tribal inheritance that was given out when Joshua first led them into this land. This was the land that would have been passed from grandfather down to father, down to son, down to his sons, down to his grandsons, and so on. This was land that had been in their family for generations and the youngest son not only doesn't give a rip about his dad, he doesn't give a rip about the entire family heritage he is from and he sells the family land. And he runs, he leaves. He heads out to a distant country, which was actually the terminology in Galilee, for the area north of the Sea of Galilee, which was Gentile country, that's what they called it, he heads out to Gentile land. And he has a party. has a series of parties. He squanders his property. He squanders all of the money he took in wild living. Now, this guy can party. I mean, we're not talking just, you know, a basic little party. This guy knows how to have a good time. Because he has just sold the estate, which put it into you know New Zealand dollar terms, we're talking millions of dollars for land. And he takes all of that money with him, so bulging suitcases, off to this far wild East Auckland, botany kind of country, and he squanders the lot in wild living. I mean, who knows what he was doing and what he spent his money on. But this kid can waste millions of dollars in our equivalent currency and having a good time. But good times never last, do they? Eventually it all catches up with you, and it does. And this is where Jesus, by the way, is just a master storyteller. It's brilliant. Because he squandered his wealth. He took all of this money, and wasted the lot. And then look at verse 14. After he had spent everything, Jesus says, there was a severe famine. It wasn't just a famine. It was a severe famine across the whole country so there was nowhere else he could go to escape it. And he was in need. And he went out and hired himself to a citizen of that country, a Gentile, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs talk about the worst place for a good Jewish boy. You know, you can't have a bacon and egg McMuffin for breakfast at McDonald's and you certainly should not be hanging out with the pigs. And he was so hungry, verse 16 tells us, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating and no one gave him anything. This boy is lost. Jesus sets up this story magnificently to get his audience angry at this younger son. He is rude. He is the kind of kid you don't want. He does everything wrong in that society. He has terribly embarrassed his father, his brother, his wider family. And Jesus wants you to not like this younger boy. This youngest son should have no supporters by the end of the story. He is well and truly lost. He's up, ended up in a far country. He has wasted millions of dollars. He has sold off the inheritance and has got nothing to show for it. And now he's sitting there as a good Jewish boy looking after pigs in a Gentile pigsty. And he is so stinking hungry, he wants to eat the food of the pigs. He wants to eat the slop. He is well and truly lost. Before we go on in the story, though, it's worth stopping here. Because so often we read the, the stories of the Bible and we don't enter into the emotion of this, and we should. How did the father feel as the for sale sign went up? How did the father feel as he watched his son head down the road, as he kissed him farewell and the son shoved them off and just headed away. I don't know you, but my hunch is here today, some of you know that feeling well. In an audience this size, my guess is that there are a number of you who have prodigal sons and daughters. And I just want to stop and acknowledge the pain that you must be feeling. It's not a pain that I understand or know personally but I can imagine how hard it is because I have friends in that place. There are others of you who may not have a prodigal son and daughter but even more painfully you've had a prodigal spouse who perhaps one day walked out the door and has never come back. Certainly I have had prodigal friends and you may have had them as well. People who you thought would would walk the road with you forever, that would pursue the kingdom with you, that would serve God with you, and something's happened along the way, and they've slowly drifted away, not only out of friendship with you, but even worse, out of a close walk with God. In a beautiful little book called Will Your Prodigal Come Home, author Jeff Lewis writes this. I think it's gonna come up here. Close relationships fragment. Once happy families shatter, as prodigals drift or stomp off. For those left behind, every day becomes like living in a cold, drafty room in which a small fire of hope flickers against the chill. And then sometimes, that fire finally dies. We never thought it could happen to us. I just simply want to acknowledge the fact that for some of you this story is painfully real. And I want you to know that while there's probably things you could have done different, there may well be regrets that maybe you could have acted differently in a situation. Even the most perfect parent can still have a prodigal. Because the only perfect parent I know it's not Reuben, it's God. And here's what God says to his people, his children, in the book of Hosea in the Old Testament. Remember that one? God says, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them up by the arms, but they didn't realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck. I bent down to feed them. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? God is using the imagery of a parent and he says, I'm like the dad that taught my little nation of Israel to walk. I'm like the dad that bent down to play with my son, to feed him. That's how I relate to my people Israel and look at what has happened, O Israel. You've gone. You've run out on me. You've turned prodigal. And if God, the perfect parent, can end up with a prodigal, there is no guarantees that any of us who do a great job of parenting or marriage or friendship, there's no guarantee we won't end up feeling the same pain. So before we go on with this story, I just want to hit the pause button for a minute and I want to pray for you. God, today as we read this story, we are very conscious that for some, the pain of this story is very real for themselves. There are parents sitting in this auditorium today who have sons or daughters walking this path. Whether they are physically left home or whether they've just checked out, there is distance there, there is heartache, there, there is pain. There are others who may well have had a prodigal spouse who walked away and closed the door and refused to be reconciled. And I cannot even begin to imagine the pain they carry. Many of us have seen this with friends too. And so God, I just want to bring those people to you today who are feeling this kind of pain right now. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be their comforter as you've promised to be. And that as they wait, as this fire of hope just flickers, I pray you would breathe on their hope. I pray you would give life to the flame. I pray they would be persistent in prayer and patiently wait, ready to welcome their prodigal home. I commit them to your care as the God who understands this pain better than we will. In your name, amen. Lost, found, rejoice. So, We've had the sheep, we've had the coin, we're now at the sun. The sun has been lost. And then verses 17 to 20, he is found. Have a look. This is where the story gets interesting. Verse 17 says, when he came to his senses, this is the young son, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. This is nuts. I'm going to sit out and I'm going to go back to my father and I'm going to say this to him. Here's the plan father I have sinned against against you I am no longer worthy to be called your son make me like one of your hired men so he got up and he went back to his father but while he was still a long way off his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him and he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him Lost, found, rejoice. This is the part of the story that I think we mess up. This is the part of the story that I think we misunderstand. Because when I've heard this story retold, or I've heard people refer to this story, generally, this is the way it's described. The son is sitting in the pigsty in a Gentile land, he realizes that he's stuffed it up. He realizes that he's made huge mistakes. And there in the pig style, in this far-off Gentile country, he repents of his sin and he comes running home to his father. And he's welcomed home by a dad who never gave up hope. And that's the story of the prodigal son. And I want to suggest to you that if that's the way you've always understood the story, I think you've got it wrong. See, I don't think the son repents in the pig style it doesn't say he repents. It says in the text that he came to himself or he came to his senses. I don't think that means he repented of his sins. I think it means he realized that this was ridiculous. He'd be better off being a slave to his father than a a sty herder. And if you look very carefully at what he says, Jesus words this brilliantly. He says this, I'm going to go back to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Now that sounds repentant, doesn't it? That sounds good, godly, spiritual talk. Actually, Jesus has just quoted the words of Pharaoh in Exodus after the ninth plague. When Pharaoh says, I have sinned against heaven and against you, I'm going to let your people go. And of course, if you know that story, you know as soon as that plague stopped, Pharaoh turned his hard heart again. And Jesus is telling this story, if you look back at the opening verses, to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who know the the Old Testament like the back of their hand. The youngest son is not repentant. He is quoting the words of an arrogant, God-hating pharaoh from the Old Testament. But then look at the next line, verse 19. This is what he's going to say to his dad. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. This is the plan okay, I've stuffed this, I've sold the land, taken millions away, wasted the whole lot, now I'm meant to come home. If I ever go home, I need to come home, not only with the money I took away, but hopefully have grown that through wise investment and bearing gifts for my family. I've got nothing, I'm homeless, I've got nothing except the rags on my body, I'm going to walk home like this, this isn't going to work. So, I'm going to come up with a business plan and go back to my dad with an idea. Dad, okay, I blow it, I realize that, and I acknowledge that. What I'd like to do is I would like to enter your employment, and I would like to live with the servants and earn the minimum wage that they earn, and then when I have saved of that minimum wage to then pay you back, which was millions of dollars, so that's you know good luck on that. But anyway, this is the plan. Let me earn my way until I've got all of the money. Then I can repay you what I've lost. And then maybe we can talk about whether there's any chance the the relationship can be restored. We commonly refer to that theologically as salvation by works. Let me come home and work my way back into your good graces. One writer, Kenneth Bailey, says this The son is going to solve his own problem. Hoping to soften his father's heart, the prodigal plans to offer his solution to the problem. He will work as a paid craftsman and be able to save money. And after the lost money is recovered, then he can discuss reconciliation. See, he's not repentant. This is not a story about a son who comes home to the father. This is a story about a father who finds his son. You see, in the first story, the sheep does not go, meh, I don't like this valley, I'm stuck in a bush, meh, I'm going to wander home, meh, and finds his way back to the shepherd. The sheep is lost and the shepherd comes and finds him. In the second story, the coin doesn't sit shivering in a crack in the mud wall and go, strike, this is stupid, I'm going to be here forever till an archaeologist finds me in the 21st century. I think I need to roll back out of the crack so that the woman can find me. No, she comes and finds the coin. And this third story is not a story about a son who comes home to his father. It is a story of a father who, just like the shepherd and the woman, goes and finds his son. So how does this work? The father is waiting for his son. He cannot go out and look for the son the way the shepherd did with his sheep. Why? Because if the father heads west who's to say the son isn't going to come home from the north? If he goes south, who's to say the the son isn't going to come home from the west? The father is a little stuck here because if he heads out to find his wayward son to bring him home, his son who was lost to him, he's he's got no guarantee he's going to be able to find him and stop him. And this is the tragedy of it, you see. If the son ever dares to come back to the village that they were part of as a family, they would have the villagers what would have what is called the Ketzatsa ceremony. They still practice it in the Middle East and certain villages today. It is like the shunning ceremony of the Amish. And what would happen in the Ketzatsa is that the villagers would have a pot ready, an earthen jar, and they would have collected in that jar a number of elements of burnt food that over the, the last few weeks or months had been burnt during cooking. They would pour all of that into the, into the earthen jar and it would be sitting in the corner of one of their homes. If a prodigal kid like this boy, who had so shamed the family, if he ever dared to come back to their village again, they would enact the Kitsatsa, And what that would involve is all of the villagers lining up outside the outskirts of the village before the sun had even got home. And they would take that earthen jar and they would throw it on the ground so that it shattered and the, the area was filled with the smell of all of that burnt, pungent food. And they would look at this boy and say, you are dead to us. You have burnt your bridges, effectively. We will not allow you to go and hurt your family anymore. You are to leave. Go. And the villagers would protect the father and the family from any further hurt. That is how it would work. If this boy ever dared to show his face at home again, the villagers would and they would enact the Kitsatsar. father would be protected from his wayward son. So the only way that the father can welcome home his son is if he spies his son and he gets to his son before the villagers do. Because if the father can get to the son, if the father can find his boy and welcome him home before the villagers can enact the Kitsatsah, then the father can embrace him. And welcome back into the family, and the villagers have to welcome him home, and that is exactly what happens in the story. This is not a story about a son who comes home. This is a story about a father who loves his son. Leon Morris, who's a great New Testament scholar, writes "This, this: "This is a distinctive and revolutionary note. God actively seeks out sinners and welcomes them home." The rabbis agreed that God would welcome the penitent sinner, but this is a new idea. That God is a seeking God who takes the initiative. Lost, found, rejoice. Verse 21. The son said to his father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he stops. Notice that. He doesn't offer his grand ideas. He doesn't suggest now that he wants to work as a servant. He's thrown out all of his salvation by works ideas and he simply acknowledges his stupidity. That's the moment of repentance. He repents in the arms of his father. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Who had the best robe in their house? The father did. It's his robe. Get my robe, put it on his shoulders put the ring on his finger. What is the ring? It's the family signet ring with which they did business. They are welcoming back as a fully functioning member of the family. Put sandals on his feet. Why? Because only servants went barefoot and he's not coming home as a servant. He is coming home as a son. And let's bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us have a feast and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Lost, found, rejoice. Isn't that a cool story? If you're following along though, you'll notice somehow we've come to the end of the story but we're not at the end of the chapter. You see that? Luke 15 is 32 verses. We're only at verse 24. So what happens next? See, this is the second way we misread this story. This is not a story about a lost son. This is a story about lost sons. Plural. Because there's an older brother, an older son, and he's just as lost. Verse 25. Meanwhile, the oldest son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother's come home, he replied. Your father has killed the fat and calf because he's come home safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in to the feast. For the second time in this story, a son embarrasses his father. He could not have embarrassed his dad more in this culture than if he had walked into that feast and slapped him on the face, just like his younger brother. This was incredibly humiliating. And this dad has to go through the agony and pain of not one prodigal son, but two of them. Only one of them went away and partied hard, but both boys are lost. And that's something that's incredibly important to understand. We like to think that the most sinful people, the ones who are furthest from God, the ones who are most lost, are the ones in a far off country partying up hard. But this older boy is equally lost. He's at home. He's stayed near the father. He's followed all the rules. He's been a good boy. And he is just as lost as his older bro. And Jesus is telling this story. If you look back at the very beginning in verses 1 and 2, to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who are murmuring and complaining that Jesus is hanging out with quote-unquote sinners. Jesus is welcoming younger sons to come home. Jesus is pursuing the party animals of his day and putting a robe around them and giving them a kiss of greeting and saying, your father loves you. And the Pharisees are annoyed, and so Jesus turns around and says, By the way, there's an older brother who's obeyed all the rules, who's ticked all the boxes, but whose heart has never been at home with the father. You're the older brother. See, can we go to the next slide? This is a story of two lost sons. The younger son squandered his wealth, while the eldest son slaved for the father. The younger son is lost because of his bad deeds. He indulged in sinful pleasure and therefore was lost. Why? Because he worshipped the idol of self. He wanted to do what he wanted. But equally, the older son here, he is lost through his good deeds. He thinks he's worked his way into the affections of the father, and he's ticked all the boxes and he's been a good church-going boy. So therefore the father loves him. But his problem is, he is far from God, not because of sinful pleasure, because of sinful morality. And as he has sat in church and obeyed all the rules and been a good kid, he has worshipped an idol of self as well. And both boys are lost. And just as he pursued the younger son, now the father pursues his older one. The father goes out, verse 28, and pleads with him, And the son answers his father, look, all these years I have been slaving for you. I have never disobeyed your orders. You've never even given me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours doesn't even acknowledge that he's his brother, when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. And the father says, my son, you were always with me, and what I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad. Because his brother of yours was dead and is alive, he was lost and is found. The story ends with an older son outside of the feast and the father going out to him and pleading with him to come in. Does the older son come in? Do they all rejoice together? We don't know. Because while the younger party animal sinners are coming home, there's a question mark over the older sons, the Pharisees, the good religious people. Will they come home? Will they be found? Will there be rejoicing over them? I want to suggest today as we finish, you can find yourself in this story. And you can find yourself in one of three places. Some of you might be the youngest son. You might be the party animal. Whether people realise it or not, you could be very well far from God, living your own life, pursuing your own ambitions, living for your own pleasure. But the party animals that I've talked to have fine who have finally got towards the end of themselves in that lifestyle, you know what your big question normally is? Have I run too far? Have I squandered too much? Have I sinned too many times for God? And the answer of this story is no. You cannot sink so low that God cannot run and find you. And if you're a younger son today or a younger daughter wondering if God would welcome you in, let me know. All you need to do is come up over the horizon and he will run to you and embrace you and welcome you home. Chances are good, though, for every younger son in this audience, there's at least 10 older ones. More likely in a good church-going crowd like you lovely folks, there's potentially a stack load of older sons or older daughters. You're just as lost. You're just as far from God. But you're good. You keep the rules, you tick the boxes, you at church, you do all the right things, you have a lovely facade on, but you too worship the idol of self, and in your heart of hearts, you're just as far from the Father. That's who I was. I've never been a younger son, but I've been an older son, very, very far from God, and very proud of my morality and goodness. And if you have never come home to the Father and realized that you can never work for his love, that you are lost in your goodness and you need to come home, maybe today is the day to accept the invitation of the Father to you. If you have accepted the invitation, whether you were a younger or an older If you have allowed yourself to be welcomed in by this God who has searched for you, then you're the third category of this. You're the welcomed son and the welcomed daughter. You have the robe around your shoulders. You have the ring on your finger and the sandals on your feet because the God who loves you ran for you. He pursued you until he caught you and he brought you in to the party and heaven rejoiced over you When you bowed your knee to him. And now you have a job to do. Because Jesus is enlisting an army of followers who will join him on this mission of searching for more lost boys and girls. And that's the big idea of this story. That like Jesus, we now are to seek the lost and celebrate when they are found. And if you've been welcomed in, whether you were a younger or an older brother, it doesn't matter where you came from. If you were lost and are now found, Jesus invites you now to join him in searching out more of the lost. Whether they're party animals far away from God, whether they're good, living, moral, religious people, God invites us to join the search and rescue team. To search them out to find them in their lostness, to share with them the love of a father and to welcome them home. Whichever character you are in the story, whether you're a younger or older son or daughter that's yet to be found or whether you have been welcomed in, you do need to know that you're not the main character of this story though. The main character of this story is a shepherd who so loved one sheep He went out to find you. He is a woman who swept a house until she found the coin that was lost. And he is a father who so loves the sons and daughters he made that when he saw his son coming on the horizon, he picked up his robes and he ran. He's the hero of the story.